You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Now, for some, the War of 1812 is seen as the second war of independence with England. Other people know this war as the one where Francis Scott Key wrote The Star-Spangled Banner after the Battle of Baltimore. Canadians remember this war as the time that the Americans invaded Canada. For most Americans, however, well, they don't know much about the war at all. Essentially, the War of 1812 was a war between Britain and the United States between the years 1812 to 1814. We're exploring a little-known episode during the war, the Burning of Buffalo. Both the Americans and the British used burnings as a tactic to draw out and attack the enemy and terrorize civilian population. Americans burned Canadian towns like York, which is modern-day Toronto, and the British burned American ones, including our own Buffalo, New York, and the more well-known episode of the burning of Washington, D.C. and the White House. We hope you enjoy this updated version on the burning of Buffalo in the War of 1812. I'm Marissa Rhodes. And I'm Elizabeth Garner Maserick. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. All right, so now for just a little rundown on the War of 1812, just so we can get our bearings in this story. As is with most any war, the War of 1812 sprung up from antagonism stemming much further back than the actual exchange of gunfire. In 1805, war between England and France was raging. Under President Thomas Jefferson, America attempted to remain neutral in that war. However, both England and France had declared the other under a blockade, which was an attempt to deny its rival free trade with the growing American economy. This subjected any American merchant vessel to assault by both French and British ships. Also, because England was in the harrowing struggle with Napoleon's France, they needed thousands of sailors to man the Royal Navy. They started impressing men, essentially forcing men into ships to work in the Navy. By the end of 1807, the Royal Navy had impressed 6,000 American sailors. They claimed that the American men were British citizens and deserters from the Royal Navy, which wasn't true. In one instance, the British actually boarded the American warship the Chesapeake in American waters just off the coast of Maryland. In 1807, Jefferson persuaded Congress to enact the embargo, which was a ban on all American vessels from sailing to foreign ports. It was an attempt to force both France and Britain to abandon their confrontational stance towards American shipping by denying either side access to America's market economy. 
something both imperial powers wanted access to. However, the embargo devastated the American economy and did not produce the desired effect in forcing both countries to allow American shipping to trade unmolested. The embargo also ticked off a lot of Americans and brought back memories of the intolerable acts of 1774 when the British crown had cut off the port of Boston from trade in order to punish the rowdy English, soon to be American colonists. The embargo caused American exports to plummet 80% and wrecked havoc on the economies of American port cities. In 1810, President James Madison, Jefferson's presidential successor, accepted France's declaration that they would stop seizing American ships if Britain would do the same, yet Britain continued to attack American merchant vessels. They also increased their impressment of American sailors into the Royal Navy. As all of this international drama was happening on the high seas, an internal crisis was growing between American Western settlers and Native American tribes living east of the Mississippi River. As white settlers poured west over the Appalachian Mountains, Native Americans began to be more and more outnumbered, a movement among many Native Americans to revitalize traditional American Indian culture and resist white and federal policies started to gain momentum. Leaders of this movement uh, included a man named Tecumseh and his brother Tinsquadaway, also known as the Prophet, who argued that resistance to white encroachment was the only way for them to survive. Tecumseh asked, quote, where today are the Pequot? Where are the Narragansett, the Mohican, the Poconet, and other powerful tribes of our people? They have vanished before the avarice and oppression of the white man as snow before the summer sun, end quote. These tribes he mentioned had all been extinguished by this point in time. So he's saying, like, see, see, if we don't resist, we're going to end up like those others. Tecumseh's followers began amassing near the joining of the Tippecanoe and Wabash Rivers in Indiana in a settlement they called Prophetstown. While Tecumseh was traveling through the Mississippi Valley building support for the movement, the U.S. sent in military troops under future President William Henry Harrison. Harrison's army camped near Prophetstown and arranged to meet with Tenskwadaway the following day. Early the next morning, however, warriors from Prophetstown attacked Harrison's army. Fighting lasted for more than two hours, with Harrison's army ultimately winning when the Prophetstown warriors' ammunition ran low. They abandoned Prophetstown, and Harrison's men burned it to the ground, destroying the food supplies stored for the winter. Just as an aside, Harrison got the nickname of Tippecanoe from this battle, which became part of his campaign slogan in the 1840 election. They had a song, Tippecanoe and Tyler Too. Now go ahead and sing that song for us. Go I don't know. <laughs> I remember. And Tyler too. I, you know that there's a song. There is. I, a song. Oh, I didn't know the song, but I do remember that from high school. Yeah. Well, and um, I think Parks and Rec did a whole uh, episode. Like they go to the Harrison Museum or something, and they're like, <laughs> joking about about this campaign of 1840. <laughs> A lot of the American public blamed this violence on what they perceived as British interference in American affairs by financial and munition support for the Native Americans. This fueled even more anti-British fervor during the lead-up to the War of 1812. Only six months after the Battle of Tippecanoe, Madison requested that Congress declare war on Britain. 
the war vote in Congress split largely along party and regional lines. Northern states, where most of the financial and mercantile resources of the country were concentrated, opposed war, arguing that international trade was actually improving. The South and the West, however, were largely in favor of war, and their agenda was pushed forward by a faction of mostly Western congressmen known as the War Hawks. These men couched their appeal for war in a kind of sexualized, gendered rhetoric. They used euphemisms that Britain was defiling or raping America, and men of America must defend America's defiled honor against British brute, i.e. rapey, force. This wasn't really anything new. The same type of arguments were used during the American Revolution and other wars. But it's interesting to point out how war was often used and justified through the lens of virtue and rape and protecting of the metaphoric female body of the nation. Also, it's interesting to note that we still call politicians hawks or hawkish if they are clamoring for war or are pro-war in general. John McCain has often been called a hawk, Hillary Clinton was known for being a hawk, and this is where that term comes from, basically a hawk being the opposite of a dove, the bird of peace. And I think another part of that metaphor um, that's worth mentioning is the 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 penis part of that, <laughs> the invading, like the invading force is like the man who is invading the the this delicate country with his... I don't know. No, more like phallus. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, so, so America being this this virginal state or whatever, and, right? And Britain being the invading, right? And I think I've seen cartoons where, um, you know, uh, shotguns and things are you, you know presented as extra phallic or something mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. as just part of this whole masculine war, rapey sort of. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Like this isn't the only war that that that's been um, that that metaphor is used. Right. right? But behind the rhetorical flair stood a desire for Western expansion into Native American territory and the desire to annex southern Canada. The war vote passed the House by a vote of 79 to 49 and the Senate by 19 to 13, the smallest margin of any declaration of war in U.S. history. This was also the first time that America declared war on another country. By the time the U.S. declared war on Britain in June 1812, Tecumseh's American Indian Confederacy was ready to launch its war against the United States in alliance with the British. Other Native American groups sided with the British as well. Doubts about American preparedness were soon realized in the Great Lakes region. An early American attempt to invade Canada wholly failed. Americans were actually pretty surprised that Canadian forces did not welcome them with open arms and become part of America. (laughs) That's so interesting to me that Americans thought, you know, Canadians just up there in Canada, they're going to be like, thank God these Americans. Yes, let's do this. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Later, over 2,000 American troops had to surrender to British Native American forces at Detroit. State militiamen refused to cross the border into Canada on two separate occasions, stating their military obligations did not extend into foreign lands. American Commodore Perry did win a large naval victory on Lake Erie in September 1813, but as we'll soon find out, American outcomes on the Northwestern Front were pretty dismal. Yeah, so just, you know, because we live here in Buffalo, we get a lot of, like, Canadian TV stations, too, and so I remember one night, like, couldn't sleep, turned on, it's like, I don't know, Canadian PBS, whatever, I can't remember what it's called, but, you know, they had this, this big documentary on the War of 1812, and literally the voiceover was... 
when the Americans invaded Canada, <laughs> da, 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 you know, it's like, oh my God, you know? Yeah, it's like this rivalry is still going. Exactly, yeah. but, you know, just like literally like a, a difference of two miles. Right. Right, and in, 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 as the crow flies, like, it's such a different perception of like these right. wars. Yeah, you I know? mean, we can walk to Canada, you know, yeah. we from here, we can just walk there. Yeah. Um, that is really... <laughs> yeah, when the Americans invaded Canada. Da, da, da. Yes. All right. The burning of enemy cities was a common tactic of the War of 1812. Our focus on the burning of Buffalo began when the New York militia Brigadier General George McClure burned down the British-Canadian village of Newark, which is now known as Niagara-on-the-Lake, on December 10th of 1813. Now, you got to realize this is December up north. It's friggin' cold. There's snow on the ground. It's not a good environment to be burned out of your home, essentially, right? So when Brigadier General McClure burns down this Canadian village, 400 unprepared residents were forced out into the snow. Obviously, this really angered the British, and so they retaliated, first at Fort Niagara, which is right on the border of America and Canada, and then they turned their sights to a smaller town in the area called Lewiston, and then villages near Niagara Falls. All of these areas are about 20 to 30 miles north of Buffalo, after the British retaliation, area command was transferred from George McClure to Amos Hall. McClure took most of the ammunition, weapons, and troops and headed east towards another small town, Batavia. This left the small frontier towns of Buffalo and Black Rock pretty defenseless. So 19 days after McClure burned the Canadian village of Newark, British troops made their way south into the American town of Black Rock, which is now incorporated into the city of Buffalo due to the city sprawl, but was a separate village at the time. There were no real soldiers there. There were 2,000 militiamen who weren't very trained, and they were just volunteer militiamen. They held out for a few hours against the British attack, but they really knew they couldn't withstand the force of the British and Native American attack, so they actually began to flee toward Buffalo to raise the warning to all their friends and family in the opposite towns. The local newspaper, the Buffalo Gazette, actually got word that the British were on their way, so they hauled their printing press out to a local village about 15 miles away, and this village is Clarence, and printed from there throughout the duration of the winter. And for a pre-automobile era, that's a significant distance. So they weren't exactly walking to town to see what was going on. They didn't spend a lot of time in Buffalo. So that's why there aren't a lot of first-person accounts in the newspapers of the burning at the time. A lot of the information that we have about the burning of Buffalo are from recollection from the people who lived through it. And I imagine also like letters that people were, or notes people were sending back and forth. Mm -hmm. If there's any archival documents that survived, I don't know. You know, most of the archival documents we have are actually people who kind of wrote about it after the fact. You know, so really kind of the only <laughs> kind of, um, I don't know, blow by blow is really from the Buffalo Gazette which, like we said, was in Clarence, and so they were getting, right. their their info was always like a couple of days late. Or was right, like but they were getting say. it through letters, through correspondence, I imagine, right? I wouldn't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I have never seen any, any archival documentation of the Buffalo Gazette getting Right, letters. well, they probably would have They might have them. been, but yeah. I, I know they were definitely getting word of mouth um, right. information. So the Buffalo Historical Society, whose I should mention, whose first president uh, was the former president of the United States, Millard Fillmore, is not remembered as being a very great president, but after he was president of the United States, he moved back to Buffalo and he became president of the Buffalo Historical Society. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, a little bit of a demotion, I guess. 
uh, you know, well, he also, he's also one of the founders of UB. Which, yeah, so right. We, we shouldn't knock him too much. You know? <laughs> we wouldn't have a school to go to. Uh, so the Buffalo Historical Society commissioned a lot of essays throughout the second half of the 19th century, and a few of these were written by survivors of the burning of Buffalo. So essentially, they would ask people in the community to, you know, write about their experiences of living on the frontier, because, I mean, before the Erie Canal, Buffalo was literally like podunk town, like yeah. frontier, right? Um, and so, you know, a lot of these uh, old essays they have are just from people's experiences of, of Buffalo in the, the early years, right? So we have a, f- a few of these uh, that, that specifically pertain to the burning of Buffalo. There were quite a few Buffalonians who did not flee when the British and Indian allies came. One of those was a woman by the name of Margaret St. John, who was a widow and remained in Buffalo throughout the ordeal. Her daughter, Martha St. John Skinner, wrote about the morning of the approach of the British. She wrote, quote, My mother said she saw an Indian pulling the curtains down from the window of the Lovejoy house opposite and saw Mrs. Lovejoy strike his hand with a carving knife and saw the Indian raise the hatchet. But as the door closed, she could not know certain that he killed her. She did not dare to go and see. Soon there came along an advance guard with a cannon and a British colonel on horseback. He spoke very cross and said, Why are you not away? Mother said she had lost the opportunity, and now she had nowhere to go to, only out into the cold and perish in the snow. He said, I have just seen now a very unpleasant sight in the house over the way. The Indians have killed a woman, and I am very sorry at any such thing should happen. Well, said my mother, I was fearful she would provoke them to kill her. I spoke to her and said, Do not risk your life for property, she answered. When my property goes, my life shall go with it. The colonel set a sentinel over Mrs. St. John's property, and presumably to protect her also, and for a while both of her houses were spared. On the third day, however, the larger house was destroyed by Indians. Apparently, only Margaret St. John's smaller house, the jail, and the local blacksmith shop were spared. The rest of Buffalo was burned to the ground. A day or two after the departure of the British and the Indians, quote, citizens assembled and gathered the dead and laid them in Reese's shop, end quote which was the blacksmith shop. Quote, there were over 40 dead bodies. It was a ghastly sight, most of the bodies having been stripped, tomahawked, and scalped. Those not soon taken away by friends were placed in a large grave in the old Franklin Square burial ground and covered temporarily with boards so that they might be examined by relatives and taken away. Quiet again settled down over the village, end quote. And there's a side note, um, those bodies buried in the Franklin Square Cemetery were later moved to Forest Lawn Cemetery, um, an event that Elizabeth and Sarah talked about in the Rural Cemetery Movement uh, episodes in our History Buffs backlog. Mm -hmm. We also have some drawings of the people fleeing Buffalo before the British and Indian troops arrived and of the aftermath. These were drawn after the fact by LeGrand St. John when he was an adult. The pictures are memories from his childhood. LeGrand St. John was a child in Buffalo during the War of 1812. These were scenes that he remembered. So they aren't the work of a child at the time. They were the work of an adult looking back on his childhood much later. There are a couple that show people running around town and a few showing what things looked like afterwards. One shows two rows along a street of chimneys standing upright within the foundation of the burned out buildings. Right. So it's essentially just like, it's just chimney standing. Like that's all that's left. Right. Yeah. Luckily, we also have a really wonderful map that a man named Juba Storrs drew of Buffalo in April of 1813, so just a couple of months before the city burned. 
Uh, Storrs was a shop owner, and the map shows all of the businesses and homes that were downtown as of April 1813. This map, along with the first-person accounts and the pencil drawings, can all be found at the Buffalo History Museum. We will also link to a few images um, of these things on our website. So I think one of the most fascinating things about this episode for me, or in my opinion, is how much of a frontier town Buffalo was in 1813. I mean, you look at these pictures, these sketches of people running from the British um, before the city burned, and it looks like a frontier town. The fences are just these zigzagged logs, like, hooked together. The homes look like log cabins. There are very few fancy or, or grand-looking buildings at all. And it's really shocking because just a short time later, like 10 years really, the Erie Canal was finished in 1825 and made Buffalo literally one of the biggest and richest and most grand cities in the country. You wouldn't necessarily remember that now. During the 19th century, Buffalo was on par with, you know, Boston and New York. You right. Know? It's boomeranged back a little bit. It but... is. It's coming back. It is. So <laughs> so not only does this story give us a little glimpse into this little remembered war, but it also shows us how rapidly America changed during the market revolution period, during this period that we're talking about, or it's called the antebellum period, basically between the early republic and the civil war. The changes were absolutely massive. So the burning of Buffalo was a very traumatic experience for the people of the city, yet many of them came back and started rebuilding right away. They were not so different than the inhabitants of Washington, D.C., which was burned by the British in August of 1814. In that ordeal, British Rear Admiral George Cockburn recommended sacking Washington because he believed it was weakly fortified and would be good retaliation for what Britain saw as the, quote, wanton destruction of private property along the north shores of Lake Erie, end quote, by American forces. According to travel accounts, the Capitol building was one of the only buildings in D.C., quote, worthy to be noticed, end quote. After looting the building, the British set it on fire. It did not easily burn, however, because it was made out of stone. So British soldiers gathered furniture from the building and heaped it into a pile and set it on fire with rocket powder. The entire 3,000-volume library of the Library of Congress was destroyed in the fire. It makes me really sad. I know. Can you imagine? No, it just makes me sad. It's yeah. like the um, the burning of the library in Alexandria in Egypt. Did you yeah. learn about that? Yes. And, you know, yes. Um, during, it just you know, makes you want to throw up. Yeah, it's just like, oh, so much information, so much history just lost. Well, and it's going on right now in Syria. You it's know? really horrifying. It is. And as another aside, um, after the war, Thomas Jefferson sold his own personal library to the government in order to pay personal debts, reestablishing the Library of Congress. And you can see this original library in the Library of Congress building today, a painting of it. No, no, no. You can go. Oh. They've got it's I mean, it's not the original. It's it's Jefferson's library that Jefferson's. Then, then he sold to the Library of Congress, which then became the Library of Congress. So the replacement. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> it's actually like they've got it kind of in, in the round. Right. So you kind of can walk into it and then and then it surrounds you and they're shelves and then they have like plexi over it so all right. of the books are there but the museum rooms in the library of congress okay. so like there's like public rooms and then there's in the back where you have to like be an academic to, to get right into and the i'm stacks sure and all stuff. climate control yeah and all that yeah, stuff. yeah 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 absolutely and it's cool too because like they'll you can i know some of them are like on loan different places so they'll have like a little marker or whatever like right this book is not here at the time but yeah no you can you can you can see it with your own two eyeballs or one eyeball it's pretty cool or however many eyeballs however you have, many, I, I, or your hands, you know, whatever. It, thank you. Yes. <laughs> Ableist. All right, sorry. 
So after the burning of the Capitol, the troops or the British troops turned up Pennsylvania Avenue towards the White House. After U.S. government officials and President Madison fled the city, Madison sent word to the First Lady Dolly Madison to be ready to leave at a moment's notice. She organized the slaves and staff to round up valuables and save, uh, you know, save whatever they could, basically, and take them with them. Uh, the First Lady was determined to save official papers and the full-length portrait of George Washington painted by Gilbert Stuart. There was no time to unscrew it from the wall, however, so the frame was broken and the canvas on its stretcher was carried from the house into the safety of the countryside. And it wasn't until 1817 was it returned to the rebuilt White House. Now, the First Lady wrote that she herself cut the picture out of the frame and carried it out of the house, and she's often credited with this kind of harrowing rescue of this portrait. Um, however, James Madison's personal slave, the 15-year-old Paul Jennings, was an eyewitness to this, and he published his memoir in 1865 and wrote, quote, It has often been stated in print that when Mrs. Madison escaped from the White House, she cut out from the frame the large portrait of Washington, now in one of the parlors there, and carried it off. She had no time for doing it. It would have required a ladder to get it down. All she carried off was the silver and a reticule, and the British were thought to be a few squares off and were expected at any moment. End quote. Jennings said that the people who saved the painting and removed the objects were really the French doorkeeper and the president's gardener, McGraw, who took it down and sent it in a wagon with other valuables. <laughs> I don't know. I find it hard to believe that the first lady would yeah. do anything herself well, when funny. she had slaves. I, I was just well, and that you know when you when you think about it, especially like she's from Virginia, like she right. grew up with slaves, right? Right. So when she says I did it myself, she means I stood there while I told someone I else told to do it. Somebody else to do it exactly. Right. But I yeah, and I I was racking my brain for the life of me. I literally was just on a tour somewhere and it must have been when I was in DC because I was there just a couple of months ago mm -hmm. and I'm trying to remember where but like in this tour group like that was that that that's still being said that you know she she ripped this cut this painting out you know with like a, a knife a butter knife and like somehow like <laughs> like carried it away in her the bosom this of painting, her dress it's like the size of a house it's, it's not like, like it's like a yeah. full-size painting yeah right, I yeah know. anyway <laughs> It's funny how those things, it's like, you know, George Washington and the cherry tree. It's like the same, like it just goes, it happens kid, forever. My kid just asked me the other day. Vincent, yeah, I know. Did, did, did George Washington cut down a cherry tree? Did he have wooden teeth? Yeah. You know, yeah, I know, I know. It's funny. Yeah. So um, whoever saved the painting, which we should note was a copy made by the original painter himself, whether it was Dolly Madison or Jennings and these two other men, it somehow made it out of the house before the British arrived. When they did, they actually ate the dinner that had been laid out earlier for the president and his party and then proceeded to burn the house down. That's vicious. That's really That's like, awful. Like, they might as well have peed on the table, you know? Yeah, I know. Um, and an interesting side note, in 2009, President Barack Obama held a ceremony at the White House to honor Jennings for helping to save the Gilbert Stewart painting. Um, a dozen descendants of Jennings came to Washington to visit the White House and see the painting in person. It's currently housed in the East Room of the White House. Madison and Congress returned to Washington within a few weeks. Reconstruction of the White House started almost immediately, and it was finished in time for the 1817 inauguration of President James Monroe. The war ended in December of 1814 with the Treaty of Ghent. 
Ships carrying the news did not reach America, however, before Andrew Jackson fought off a British invasion in January of 1815 and gained fame for his win at the Battle of New Orleans. And he ended up writing that fame all the way to the White House in 1828. At the close of the War of 1812, neither British nor America ceded any territory to the other. Native Americans lost the most by losing any British protection they had previously received. Additionally, both friendly and hostile Creek and Cherokee Indians were forced to cede a majority of their land, over 23 million acres, to American forces under the command of Andrew Jackson in the southeast region of the U.S. That seems a lot. 23 million acres? No, <sighs> never mind. I was thinking an acre no, was bigger acres than the mile. Small. Yeah, you're right, yeah. you're right, right. I just need to point out that not how it always works. So it's like white people fighting white people and the Native Americans threw in their lot with whoever would mm-hmm. give them the best benefit. And then they're the ones who end up losing out the most. Absolutely. I mean, and the same kind of thing happened in the War of uh, the Seven Years' War. And yeah. ended in 1754. Exactly. Yep. Like, the Indians, well, as we can see today, they don't, they don't win these stories, unfortunately. Yeah. So it was kind of a draw, essentially. Um, they just kind of just decided to go back to, like, pre-war dealings, right? Um, but what the war did do was it proved to the world that the, uh, you know, kind of this new American experiment, because um, remember, the country wasn't even really 30 years past the signing of the Constitution at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, it showed the world that America was, you know, here to stay and could survive as an independent nation. Uh, We have a great public history project here in the city of Buffalo that highlights some of the events of the War of 1812. A lot of these local archival sources that we've mentioned were used to create an informative walking tour throughout downtown Buffalo. Yeah, so we want to definitely give a big thanks to the Buffalo History Museum um, for letting us uh, see their archives and see some of these original documents that we discussed in this podcast today. So that's our little um, claim to fame, I guess, here in Buffalo regarding the War of 1812. It's a, a little known war in American history, but it uh, had big impact on the way Native Americans um, were continually kind of pushed west uh, during that kind of era of expansion. Right. And this, you know, sounds way less important than that. <laughs> so I hate that I'm saying it second, but... Um, it had a big impact on um, the kind of architecture that has survived here in Buffalo because it's all that sort of antebellum um, or mid-19th century architecture. Those are the oldest buildings that we sure. have. Sure. We don't have, like, you know, like res- preserved log cabins or things Absolutely. like that. Absolutely. Your home is not older than 1813. No, it's not <laughs> going to happen. And that's the same thing in Washington, D.C. A lot of it is like that, too. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that Buffalo and Washington, D.C. were both designed by the same urban planner. Yeah. Um, he was French, I think, right? La Enfant. Le, yeah, le, l'enfant. Yes, le, thank you. L'enfant. <laughs> See, you can actually. L'enfant. I read it and I go, "Lay in fait." <laughs> l'enfant. Yeah. Um, yes, and he designed the cities with those concentric circles that are like mm-hmm. so infuriating in Washington D.C. when you're trying to walk somewhere right. and everything is like this giant circle with. 
10 streets coming off oh my of it. God. I'm so glad you said that because I literally found myself lost so often yeah. when I was there a couple of I don't days. even understand. I don't even, I took an Uber and I was like, you have the hardest job ever. I don't understand how you drive here. It's just crazy. So um, thankfully, Buffalo isn't quite as complicated as that because it's so much smaller, yeah. but it's still designed around those concentric circles. So we yeah. have, you know, Lafayette Square and we call them squares, but they're circles. They're circles. Yeah. yeah. yeah <laughs> so, I never even thought about that. So it was actually designed by Joseph Ellicott. Um, well, and, and he, he was, was a, a protege. He, he was a protege. Okay. And that's what I was, that's, that's where I was trying to remember those. And Ellicott was hired, I think, by the Holland Land Company. And the Holland Land Company is actually who bought the land of Buffalo. And then they sold off parcels. Okay. To settlers. Okay. And, and like, that was in 1796, I think, is when Holland Land Company purchased this. Right. Event. Well, Niagara Square was finished in 1805. Okay. So that was already, so that concentric, that, that L'Enfant, inspired planning um from washington was already already in starting the works yeah. yeah yeah again which is really interesting because i mean i don't think we can stress enough how frontier this was you know right like, it is kind of strange that that is so early and they couldn't have known they couldn't have had the foresight that the erie canal would no not that early not in, you wouldn't think not not, not in 1800 they had big plans Right. Man with a plan. Hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, they might. it might be unconnected. I just thought it was interesting yeah, that these no. two big burnings. And I'm sure there's probably some, like, pen that puts all that in and some historian somewhere is listening to us and screaming at their radio or whatever. Yeah. Like, hey, what about this, you morons? Yeah. But it's all connected. As, as of now. <laughs> right. We don't know the connection. I can't bring it up. But, yeah. So stay tuned because, like we said, this is a, a re-record of an older History Buffs podcast. We are revamping and coming back at you strong as dig history podcast we're launching a new rss feed so be sure to look out for dig a history podcast our new feed on itunes um, will be launching in september Mm -hmm. and make sure to follow us on all our social media platforms pinterest uh, instagram twitter digpodcast.org facebook Sign up for our, for our email newsletter at digpodcast.org. So you don't miss a thing. So you don't miss a thing. Don't you dare miss a thing. So thanks for listening. I'm Elizabeth. I'm Marissa. And we're Dig. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig. Elizabeth garner Nazarick, Sarah Hanley-Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Gabriel Earls. You can find show notes and further reading as well as the archive for the History Buffs podcast at digpodcast.org. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest at dig underscore history and on Facebook at dig podcast. Thanks for listening. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.